Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you familiar with terms such as uh, angiogram, a stress test, and electrocardiogram? If you are, could you be that you work in the medical field? Otherwise, perhaps you've had some heart trouble recently, or maybe your doctor suspects you've had some heart problems, because all these things are tests, uh, various tests to measure the health of your heart. But to that list of tests, such as angiogram, perhaps we should also include the Ten Commandments. No, I'm not suggesting the Ten Commandments act as some sort of stress test, but the Ten Commandments likewise measure the health of our hearts. Now, of course, the biblical term, the heart, when the Bible refers to the heart, it means something different than the muscle in your body that, that pumps blood. But in the Bible, the heart is the very center of a person. It describes the very core of our being. It includes our emotions, desires, and it's the thing that ultimately controls us. Because it's the very center of our being, it's no wonder that God's law governs also our hearts, that God's law speaks about our hearts. After all, God made everything, and God is the king of everything, and so he also rules over what happens uh, in our hearts, in our deepest person. And so that brings us to the sermon theme, God's law governs even our hearts. We'll look at three things. First of all, we'll look at, first of all, the, the commandment about our hearts, and then uh, the remaining sinfulness in our hearts, and thirdly, the obedience we give from the heart. So we'll look at the commandment about our hearts. So for the last 11 Lord's Days, we've been going through the Ten Commandments, the Catechism describes each of the commandments in terms of their bare actions. For example, God forbids us from physically killing our neighbor. God also forbids us from physically stealing our neighbor's possessions. But as we went through the Catechism, perhaps you all also noticed that God's law does not stop there with the bare actions. It also describes the desires we are to avoid, the wrong desires to avoid, and the right desires we are to take on and cultivate. For example, God forbids us to hate our neighbor in our, in our hearts. He also forbids us from cultivating lustful, uh, sinful desires. These are matters of the heart, our desire. But now we come to the Tenth Commandment, and there is no external action described here. This commandment is purely focused on our heart. It aims directly at the things we desire. So the commandment is worded like this, you shall not covet. And coveting means desiring to have for yourself what rightfully belongs to someone else. And we can desire pretty much anything our neighbor has. Uh, Exodus 20 lists, uh, lists uh, things such as our neighbor's house, our neighbor's husband or wife, 
ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to our neighbors. And we could easily add to that list in our own context. Yes, we might be tempted to covet our neighbor's house or, or maybe our neighbor's spouse, um, but I doubt any of us ever desire someone else's donkey. Some more common examples today might be our neighbor's car, our neighbor's job, paycheck, a family, a body, a talents, and the list goes on and on. We can covet pretty much anything our neighbor has. One thing this shows us is that coveting is not just a solitary commandment, isolated from the others. No, it's very much connected to them. Coveting is also about all the other commandments in the law. It almost acts like a summary commandment, you could say. The Catechism puts it like this, what does God require in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Now, when we read that, we might at first wonder about that description. You know, didn't I just state that coveting is specifically about wanting for yourself what belongs to your neighbor? And that is true. But when you see all the covetous desires we can have, you can see how they relate to the other commandments. For example, Colossians 3 identifies coveting with idolatry, the first commandment. A person who covets his neighbor's money will be tempted to steal his neighbor's um, possessions or money. A person who covets his neighbor's spouse has already committed adultery in his or her heart. James 4, which we read together, relates coveting to fighting and even murder, as it says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So it's easy to see from that that the Tenth Commandment is not only, it's not just a separate commandment on its own. It's about guarding our desires so that we don't break any of the commandments. And coveting can be really sneaky, too. You know, we might engage in coveting without even realizing it. Or when we do realize we are coveting, we might think it's really not that sinful. Now, I want to illustrate this, actually, of all things, through the pop singer uh, Taylor Swift. In 2019, Taylor Swift released the single, You Need to Calm Down, from her album titled uh, Lover. Now, the song, if you've heard of it or seen the music video, the song targets what she regards as internet trolls and homophobes. The music video features a celebration of sexual immorality and drag queens. and also pictures people with biblical sexual ethics as backward hicks and, to be bluntly honest, as morons. Now, seeing the sinfulness in a song like that is easy to spot. I hope we can all see that it's just obvious. However, something like coveting is a lot easier for us to miss. 
Take, for example, another Taylor Swift song released back in 2008. You've probably heard it before. The song is called uh, You Belong With Me. If you hear it, it's probably stuck in your head for about a week. Throughout the song, Taylor Swift sings about her covetous desire for her classmate's boyfriend. She expresses disdain for her classmate, who obviously doesn't deserve to have that guy. And then she sings about how she longs to be in a relationship with a young man herself. The entire song is a breaking of the Tenth Commandment. But here's the thing. How many young Christian girls or women sang that song thinking it was no big deal? Or how many parents or the rest of us believe a song like that is not really that harmful? But it's the songs like You Need to Calm Down, which I mentioned earlier, it's those songs that we really need to, to watch for. James 4 teaches us that happily singing along to that song, You Belong With Me, is equally as much friendship with the world and enmity with God as a song you need to calm down. This shows us the deceitfulness of sin. We can easily be blinded to it, and coveting is a great example. We might think it's no big deal. Scripture, however, opens our eyes to the deadly danger of covetousness. Think of the fallen to sin. Eve essentially ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because she desired its fruit, which God had not given to her. In the book of Joshua, Achan coveted some of the plunder of Jericho. Then he took it for himself even though the Lord forbade anyone in Israel from doing just that. The coveting ended up costing him his life. David coveted his neighbor's wife, leading him to commit both adultery and murder. Gehazi coveted Naaman's money. After taking some of his possessions, he ended up with Naaman's leprosy too as a punishment. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard and ended up having this innocent man murdered so that he could steal his property. And then there's James 4 again. Coveting leads to fighting and even murder. Coveting is essentially friendship with the world, it says. And so, Scripture wakes us up to the danger of sin and the damage of sin. Coveting is not harmless. And this is why God devotes an entire commandment about our desires. Allowing sin to take hold in our heart will quickly lead us to sin with, with our bodies, in our actions. Well, there's a positive side to this as well. When the Lord forbids coveting, He also directs us to cultivate a spirit of contentment. And, and peace in our hearts. This will then lead to peace and righteousness in our lives, in our actions as well. You know, we could make a, a mirror version of James 4 to describe the benefit of contentment. What do I mean by a mirror version? Well, it would sound something like this. What causes peace among you and calms down quarrels? 
Is it not this, that your hearts are content within you, and you have set your heart on God as your highest joy in life? You have, you have things and are content, so you give generously to help your neighbor. You faithful people, do you not know that friendship with God is enmity with the world? God not only forbids coveting, He calls us to develop content spirit in our hearts. This will lead us to live more and more according to the rest of God's commandments. That brings us to our second point. So, coveting is the last of the Ten Commandments. The Lord says, you shall not covet. And having finished up teaching the Ten Commandments, the Catechism then asks about God's law, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer we confess there is this, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Now, there's one thing uh, we should not, we should be careful to not misunderstand here. The The catechism is not denying the massive change that takes place in a believer's life. Absolutely not. Those who believe in Christ are no longer dead in their sin. Sin is no longer the ruling principle in the life of the Christian. Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. That is all good and true. And yet, we can at the same time still confess what we do uh, in this question and answer. Even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. And why is that the case? Well, it is indeed because God's law focuses so much about what goes on in our hearts, our desires, and our thoughts. Now, listen to what David says about God in Psalm 51. You delight in truth in the inward being, in the innermost parts, right? In the core of our being in our hearts. Some translations put it, you desire integrity in the inner self. And think of what God said in 1 Samuel 16 to Samuel. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, what, are, what we desire, what we think. And when we examine our hearts, we see how much we need yet uh, to be changed, to be made perfect. Take only what the Lord Jesus teaches us in Mark 7. He begins by speaking about food. There was a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees about eating with unwashed hands. And Christ emphasized to his disciples that they don't, they don't really need to worry about food, the particular foods they eat. He says to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, that cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but enters into his stomach and then goes out of the body. Food doesn't enter into our hearts. Therefore, eating particular foods cannot make us sinful. But notice then the contrast Jesus sets up. It's not what goes into a person that makes him sinful or defiles him but it's what comes out of him 
That is, out of his or her heart that defiles a person with sin. This is what he says at the end of this passage. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, uh, evil things, come from within, and they defile a person. Well, that's quite a list that Christ gives. You know, think about this list here. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, coveting, envy, or pride, all the rest. Well, how often do those things arise in your heart? I'm sure, I'm sure we struggle with one or more of those every day and see them. Sometimes we might face a barrage of them, multiple uh, evil desires. Sometimes one of them arises so strongly that it seeks to dominate our hearts, our minds, and, and our lives. And these things show us how far we yet have to go. We are not perfect. And we become unclean every day through those evil thoughts and desires that arise from our hearts. You know, this morning we heard about the job of the Old Testament priests. And one of the stipulations the Lord made in His law was that the priests had to make a sacrifice every day. First for Himself and then for the people. So they had to make sacrifices, the priests, first for themselves every day. Not because the people back then were so much worse than we are now, but God was showing something about our sinful nature and the remaining sin in our hearts. Sinful desires arise every day. They arise in our hearts too. Now, why is it important to understand this? Well, it guards us against errors like perfectionism, and I'm not speaking about perfectionism where someone meticulously pays attention to every detail to make sure it's just so, but this is a theological perfectionism. Some people believe that believers can reach a state of perfection in this life, but that is a very damaging teaching. 1 John 1 verse 10 speaks strongly against this, saying, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Furthermore, remain, knowing the remaining sin in our hearts also leads us to humility. We daily increase our debt with God. Think about what James 4 said after uh, he, he points out the covetous desires that those people were dealing with. He tells them to humble themselves before the Lord. Repent so that in due time God may lift them up. We cannot claim anything before God based on our performance, but we look to Jesus Christ. And all this might sound discouraging, and in maybe one sense it is. You know, this struggle against sin, it's a lifelong battle. But at the same time, it's also comforting. True believers, true believers are not yet perfect. God's children are not yet perfect. 
And so it's the normal Christian experience to struggle against sinful desires in this life. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian or a child of God. Now, of course, we're never content with that. We never embrace those things or cultivate them in our heart. We grieve that things are this way. But neither are we driven to doubt or despair. We are God's children, even so. That brings us to our last point, the obedience we give from the heart. Now, the last question of the catechism naturally follows from the one we just looked at. There, we, there the catechism asks, Since in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly, and you might have wondered that at times too. You know, isn't this, isn't this kind of useless? Isn't the strict preaching of the law just driving people to be down in the dumps or something like that? You know, can I even have rest in my heart and soul if I'm continually poked and prodded by God's law, and it continually shows me my failings to keep it? I know, I know, I'm sinful. Now, in a certain sense, the law is meant to drive us to despair, but it's a despair of a different kind. God wants to make us despair of trying to earn our acceptance uh, by God through our works. That's because that is a dead end. It's it's never going to work. It's never going to happen. You know, if we think we are good enough for God by our law-keeping, then we've made a, a serious mistake. We might think we've kept the law, but the law can keep getting ratcheted up until it's crystal clear that we don't measure up to its perfect standards. And that's one reason why God has given us a law, to show us this. And all this is meant to turn us to the one who did measure up our Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture is quite clear about this too. As Romans 3 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was meant to lead us to Christ, that we might find righteousness in Him. Or Galatians 3, 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So never make the mistake of thinking you can measure up to the standards of the law in order to be accepted into heaven by God. It's because you're never going to make it that way. You see, even if from this point on you lived a perfectly righteous life, You can't do more than perfect in order to make up for the parts where we fail to live perfectly. You can't do more than perfect. The truth is, there is only one truly perfect, righteous person who ever lived. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we are meant to find our righteousness before God in Christ alone. This is the first reason why God has the law preached so strictly. The second reason is described at the end of question and answer 115. 
God has the law preached so strictly also so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. You know, if there's one concept that's absolutely crucial for us to understand, it's this. My obedience to the law is never the basis for my acceptance with God, but my obedience is the necessary consequence of being accepted by God in Christ. Let me say that again. My obedience to the law is never the basis for my acceptance with God, but my obedience is the necessary consequence of being accepted by God in Christ. So, what does that mean? Let me explain that further. We must never put our trust in our own obedience as a basis for God accepting us. We will fail. The basis for our acceptance by God comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone and His perfect righteousness. However, we also don't make the mistake of saying, well, since I'm accepted by God apart from my works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, that it means my works don't really matter, or it doesn't matter how I live my life. No, that too is a dead end and a devastating mistake. It's an error called antinomianism, which literally means against the law. Obedience to God on the part of believers is not optional. No, it's it's a necessity. I want to explain this further by thinking about this in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures make clear that when someone has the Holy Spirit in them, they are accepted by God. After all, God does not give the Holy Spirit to His enemies, but to His children. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. Those who have the Spirit of God are sons of God. As Peter says in Acts 15, God showed He accepted the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. The question is, Does someone need to do anything before they receive the Holy Spirit? Do they need to work for Him in any way? And the answer is a clear no. Those who simply believe in Jesus Christ, apart from anything they have done, have the Holy Spirit in them. All believers do. Acts 10, Ephesians 1, Galatians 3 all make this crystal clear. And this affirms without any doubt that people are accepted by God through faith in Christ apart from any of their attempts to obey the law. It's by Christ and Him alone. At the same time, what happens to a person who has the Holy Spirit? That person will unfailingly begin to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to write God's commandments, God's law, on our hearts and on our minds. The Holy Spirit energizes God's children to put to death the remaining sin in their lives 
and to cleanse out evil desires that try to take hold. It simply cannot be that a person with the Holy Spirit would go on living the way they lived when they were dead in sin. It's simply impossible. Rather, as those who have been given new hearts by the Spirit, we will begin to obey God from the heart. You see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses His law to convict us of our sin and to bring us to repentance. And when we have that conviction of our sin, we turn again to our Lord Jesus Christ to find forgiveness and righteousness in Him. And we rest in that. We rejoice in that. But we also never remain contentedly living in sin. Instead, we continue to walk that long road of sanctification, of becoming more and more holy. We do, as Lord's Day 44 describes, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. And that goal is coming. And when we reach that goal of perfection, then we will always be at rest. Then we will always live in complete righteousness. Then we will live in complete joy, for we will forever be freed from sin. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 28, stanzas 1, 2, and 4.